before we pray, Acts 19, seven Jewish exorcists go to this demon-possessed guy. Do you remember this? And the demons say to the exorcist, Jesus we know, Paul we've heard of, and who are you? Just think of that. Jesus we know. Well, obviously the demons know Jesus. Paul we've heard of? Demons are like talking about Paul? Are they having meetings, like Paul meetings? Yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's make Jesus' name known on earth and our names known in hell. Let's pray that in right now. Lord, we want to become a problem in hell. We want demons to be saying, Jesus, we know. Vertical church, yeah, we know those guys. Their love and their worship of Jesus is getting out of hand. We know those guys. Father, make Jesus' name known on earth. (laughs) And just for fun, make our name known in hell. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, Vertical Church. Let's be rowdy this morning. I'm in a rowdy mood this morning. There it is, my sister. Let's go. Hey, so we, we want to shoot about uh, 75% of Sundays to be working line by line through an entire book, God willing, in October and then all of November and December. We're going to be digging into the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, it's going to be metal. We're going to be in black and chokers and it's going to be goth. But two or three times a year, we want to pull aside and we want to either do a theological study, just dive into something deep as a church family, or we want to speak to something that our church family needs to hear right here, right now. And every September, you can just mark it on your calendar. We are going to rally around the mission and the vision of Vertical Church. Um, Why? Because every year, things about this church change. Staff changes, volunteers change, maybe someday location will change, ministries can change. But listen, some things must never change. The mission of our church must never change. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. That must never change. And... what we call the pillars, the way we believe God makes disciples of Jesus Christ. Those must never change. And this morning we are studying our first, we're not studying, we're rallying around our first pillar, unapologetic preaching. Vertical Church is committed to proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. That must never change. It hasn't changed. Lord, don't let it change. Why? Because preaching the word with authority, without apology, that's doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Our vision for this year is that single phrase, the Lord's work, the Lord's way. I'm borrowing it from a guy named Francis Schaefer. Francis Schaefer has this cute little book. It's like a pocket-sized book. Don't let the size surprise you or, or deceive you because it is an explosive book. In it, Schaefer says that uh, the church can either do the Lord's work the Lord's way, or the church can do, and most churches are doing, the Lord's work in their own ways. And when we do the Lord's work in our own ways, that's not just less than ideal, that's 
demonic. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, just another life in the day of Jesus. He begins by feeding 5,000 men, at women and children. We're talking 15,000. Next event, he's walking on water. Guys, how awesome is Jesus? <laughs> so lame. And then he gives this he gives this hard teaching on how to receive eternal life. And um and everybody leaves. The beginning of the chapter begins with 15,000, it ends with just Jesus and his 12. And note that Jesus never preached to build crowds, he only preached to thin them out. So his disciples pull him aside after everyone left, and they're like, hey, Jesus, awesome message. I mean, whew, powerful stuff. What the heck were you talking about out there? And Jesus says in a single sentence, it's the climactic clause of the entire chapter, John 6, 63, goes like this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Guys, let's, as a church family, let's just memorize that this year. It is the Spirit who gives life. Do you see that? This is, this is what we do at Vertical Church. We lean in. Let's lean into the first clause there. It is the Spirit who gives life. Is spirit capitalized in your Bible? Good. Okay, because we're not talking about Jesus' mood here. We're talking about a person, Penuma. It is the Holy Spirit. Point one, for us to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, we must depend exclusively upon the Holy Spirit for life. And just by way of repentance, I haven't done this well. I haven't led our church to do this well. And because God is merciful, I want to grow in this. And he's been very patient with me. You see, most of us, and I did, most of us conceive God the Father as the mean one, God the Son, Jesus, as the nice one, and God the Spirit as the weird one. And we do that because there's so many people out there doing borderline blasphemous stuff in the name of the Holy Spirit. When I was a baby Christian, I had just gotten saved, and so, of course, I'm doing street evangelism. And there's, I was with some group, and they're like, have you spoken tongues yet? And I'm like, no. And they're like, oh, it's easy. So they all circled me, and they're like, just start making sounds. And I'm like, yabba dabba do. And they're like, you're doing it. And I'm like, I'm new at this. I don't think I'm doing it. I don't think this is it. Guys, that is messed up. And the only thing more messed up than that was the prosperity gospel they proceeded to preach to homeless people. But just to be clear... That's not what I'm talking about when I say we need to grow in the Holy Spirit. But listen, I do believe Jesus wants us to depend more upon the Holy Spirit's person and functions for spiritual life and vitality at Vertical Church than ever before. Why? Because Jesus tells us right here, it's the Spirit who gives life. For us to grow in the Spirit, we need to know what he does. Jesus repeatedly tells us what the Holy Spirit's ultimate purpose is. It's his climactic teaching, the upper room discourse. And in John 15, Jesus tells us, he, he says this, When the Helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. What does the Spirit do, you guys? That's right. He will bear witness about me. In John 16, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now catch this. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. If you ever find yourself in a gathering and it's all Holy Spirit this, Holy Spirit that, Spirit, 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 there might be a Spirit there. It's not the Holy Spirit. I know I just made somebody mad. Because Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit's purpose is to come and glorify, not the Spirit, Jesus. So the name that will be most uttered and celebrated and emphasized and cherished in a room where the true Holy Spirit is, is Jesus, 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 Jesus. J.I. Packer says the Holy Spirit's ministry is a floodlight ministry. When you look at the cathedral at night and it's all lit up, do you think, man, look at those lights. Those 2,000 watt, 5,000? No, no. What do you do? Look at the cathedral. Look at that steeple. Now, listen, the floodlights are there, and they are non-ignorable. They are active. They are bright. They are powerful, but they're active in a way that draws attention not to themselves, but to the object for which they are there to glorify, the cathedral. So it is with the Holy Spirit. He is there. He is active. He is non-ignorable, but he's there to glorify the object for which he is there to glorify Jesus. It is the Spirit who gives life. Vertical church needs the Holy Spirit in 2023 as much as the early church needed the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, just like this, you guys. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. I can tell you this, that was not on the service plan this, that morning. You, think about the person who missed church that morning. Can you imagine that? Someone, you know someone was like, I went last week, I'm good. And they missed it. It's one of the reasons you should come to church. You never know when there's going to be a manifest outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. I'm serious about that. But verse 3, listen to this. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on, what does that say? Each one of them. Guys, I'm just like such a, an infant in my understanding of the Holy Spirit. This is a brand new discovery this week, and I'm so excited about it. Because throughout the Old Testament, where, wherever God's presence descended upon, upon a place, he did so in the form of a fire. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. He led Israel through the desert by a pillar of flame. He consumed Mount Sinai in fire when he gave the law. So in Acts 2, the fire of God comes down and rests upon every believer. Every believer becomes a burning bush. A place where the manifest presence of God now is. See, for thousands of years, if people wanted to be in the presence of God, they had to come to Jerusalem, they had to come to the temple. Now, with the fire of God resting on each one of them, come and see turns into go and tell. 
in the Old Testament, the fire of God's presence produced fear and even death. You know what happened immediately after the fire of God's presence came down on Mount Sinai and gave the law? God's people disobeyed, Exodus 32, 28. And on that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. Do you know what happened immediately after the fire of God's presence came down at Pentecost? Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Because Jesus had absorbed all the wrath for all of God's people on the cross, now when the spirit comes down upon us, people don't die, people come to life. And call me crazy, but I think God put Acts chapter 2 in our Bibles because God wants to put Acts chapter 2 in this church. Guys, I'm just, I'm done with the predictable, the explainable, the manageable, the we did it. We want vertical church to be a place that what's happening here can only be explained by God. Some might say, Chris, you know, even you talking about the Holy Spirit makes me think, are we going to become one of those weird churches? Like, are we going to be a weird church? Well, first, tell me you haven't read much of this book without telling me you haven't read much of this book. Because, guys, I have a couple hundred books in my library. This is by far the weirdest book. This, everything about this is weird. Everything about what we believe is weird. If you mean weird, if you mean silly, borderline blasphemous, disordered, unscriptural, the nonsense that is so often blamed on the Holy Spirit, no, no, we're not going to become weird. But if by weird, it's pretty weird that someone who has spent their whole life hating God would walk in, hear one message, and love him. That's weird. It's pretty weird that somebody who's been addicted to a substance or addicted to screens would encounter Jesus and be free in a moment. That's weird. It's pretty weird that someone would walk into a place with a physical ailment and walk out of that place not seeing a doctor and it be healed. That's weird. Miracles are weird. And I'm still, I'm still waiting for someone to show me that, that verse where God says, I'm done doing that. If by weird you mean weirdly holy, weirdly joyful, weirdly loving, weirdly prayerful, weirdly power-filled, weirdly generous, weirdly charitable, then man, let's get weird. Why? Because it's the Spirit who gives life, and it's supernatural, a.k.a. it's weird. So this means, guys, first, the pressure is Man, if I had to come up here and make something happen in people's heart, I would just be curled up catatonic. Like, I can't do that. And you can't do that with your friends and your, your loved ones. You cannot love someone so well that you love them into life. You cannot be there for someone so often that your being there brings them into spiritual life. It is the Spirit who gives life, so the pressure's off. It, guys, God does the work. God does the work. That's the most liberating thing ever. God does the work. And if the Spirit who gives life, if it's the Spirit who gives life, here's what this also means. The church with the most modest resources 
has everything they need for the same world-changing ministry that marked the early church. We don't need money. We got the Holy Spirit. In fact, simplicity and need are sovereign advantages because they are the prerequisites that push us into desperation. And God, you have to do this. And God loves that kind of church. Blessings aren't blessings if they move you out of desperation. We love simplicity around here. We love need because that is God's ground zero for showing up in power. It's a spirit who gives life. No glitz, no glamour, just God. Amen? Now look at the next line. It's a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all, Jesus says. Here, flesh, flesh here is referring to everything that's just not spirit. The New Living Translation actually helpfully draws this point out well. It says, the spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. That's the point. And look how emphatic Jesus is. The flesh is less help. No help. It's a little help. No help at all. Jesus wants us to get it through our skulls. Guys, if we're going to do the Lord's work, not our way, the Lord's work in the Lord's way, then we need to denounce entirely the flesh for help. Turn your Bibles over to Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus just asked Peter the most important question anyone could ever ask anyone, who do you think Jesus is? And Jesus says, I'm sorry, Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, you're so blessed because you didn't, you didn't figure that out yourself. God revealed that to you. Next paragraph, Matthew 16, beginning verse 21. If you're there, say there. I'll wait for the rest. Matthew 16, verse 21. If you're there, say there. Okay, there it is. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me. What does that say? That escalated quickly. What happened? Five sentences ago, you were celebrating Peter's correct Christological theology, and now you called him Satan. Like, why? See it. For you are not, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Lean in here, guys. This is so important. Peter did not set his mind on the things of Satan to become useful to Satan and hinder the cause of Christ. All Peter had to do to be used by Satan is to assume that life with Jesus meant something other than the cross. Peter thought, Jesus, we're going up. We're going up and to the right. We're going to get some power and some influence and we're going to be impressive and people are going to want to be with us. And Jesus doesn't say that's misguided or poor, poor theology, he says that's satanic, to use his words. A church doesn't need to set its mind on the things of Satan to become useful to Satan and hindering to the true cause of Christ. 
All a church has to do to be used by Satan is assume that life and ministry is about something other than the cross. And the pull is so subtle. Notice, when, when did Satan enter in and start persuading Peter? He didn't. Peter just took his correct theology and then proceeded with the obvious, no-brainer, natural instincts that life with Jesus is going to mean more for us. For us to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. For us to not do the devil's work. For us to not hinder the true cause of Christ. We need to denounce selfish motives. I had to do this last week. I'm doing this again this week. A church can have the same motives as someone moving to Hollywood in hopes of becoming something. That's satanic. For it relates to Jesus in the same way Jesus, uh, Satan did in the revolt. I want your glory. I don't want people looking at you. I want everyone looking at me. Guys, that is satanic. But more subtle, but equally as important, we need to denounce self-reliant methods. The last thing our world needs today is another successful church doing whatever cool, trendy thing generates buzz and gives the illusion that God is doing something there. There, That is a hindrance to the true cause of Christ. That's not neutral. That's moving things backwards. Churches, ministries, pastors, we're trying to use Jesus, like Peter, to go up. And we're trying to bring people to success and influence and the nicey-nice and a baptized version of the American dream. And Jesus says, that's the opposite direction. I'm trying to take people to the cross. Ray Ortland writes, quote, A church with the wrong kind of attractive power, however much that church might be admired with thousands of people flocking in, that kind of church is a total disaster brilliantly disguised as a massive success. We don't need to abandon orthodoxy to abandon Jesus. Correct theology did not put Peter out of Satan's reach. All we need to do to do the devil's work is to do the Lord's work with a selfish motive, floodlighting ourselves instead of Jesus and the cross, or in a self-reliant method of man-centered ministry. And here again, we just stop and repent. We are sorry, Lord. A church not prayerfully dependent on the Holy Spirit, but dependent instead upon expertly executing the tricks of the trade. Slick social media, tight worship services, powerful messages, well-planned events, saying all the right things. Listen, that church is exalting in the darkness of the flesh every bit as much as a porn site. It's devoid of the Spirit. It's devoid of God. At Vertical Church this year, as every year moving forward, it is spirit or bust. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. And yes, we'll still continue to do stuff. We're going to try to do stuff at least. 
and try to do events that push people towards Jesus. Yeah, we'll use social media. We'll do lots of things, but all the things we must do must be done in a place of complete and exclusive and total reliance upon the Holy Spirit who gives life. Now, look at the end of verse 63. Maybe you're thinking, dude, I thought this was a message on preaching. Okay, here's where we get, here's, here's where the preaching comes in. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Here it is. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus says he pours out his life-giving spirit through his words. And again, let's be careful readers of the Bible. It doesn't say the word that I have spoken to you. Almost every church says they're about the word of God. I've never met a preacher who doesn't say he preaches the word of God. But how many get down into the words of God? Nouns, prepositions. Why is that preposition there? Verb tenses. That's where Jesus says, hey, you get down there and that's where you're going to experience life and spirit. If we're going to do the Lord's work, not in our own clever ways, but in the Lord's way, we need to declare expositionally the words of God. I'm not going to have people raise hands, but if I asked all the children of divorce to raise hands, over half of our hands would go up. And in another sense, all of our hands should go up because there has been a divorce in the church between spirit and truth, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Bible. And as is always the case, when a divorce takes place, the children are expected to take sides. On the word side, the glory and the honor of God is at stake. People on this side will say, hey, we need to get back to the once for all, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, Jude 1.3. We need to get back to the pure doctrine of the apostles. We need to get back to the pure preaching of the pulpit. We need to get back to the stainless steel solid theology of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And to that we would say, yes and amen. And then on the Holy Spirit side, do you know what's at stake? The glory and honor of God. We need to get back to the power that was demonstrated in the early church. Guys, Jesus thought it was unthinkable to try to go do something without his Holy Spirit. Talking to his disciples in Luke 24, people who had been with him for years, people who had seen him die on the cross, go into the grave, resurrect, they're like, okay, we got to go tell the world. And he's like, don't even think about that. Luke 24, 39, until you are clothed with power from on high. When Paul goes to the Corinthians, he's like, I wanted to, you guys know this, I wanted to come with plausible words of wisdom, but what I needed was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's what we need. People on the spirit side say we need to get back to the Holy Spirit's power where miracles are happening. I know our friends on the word side say, well, well, you know, those, those miracles were there to authenticate the apostolic ministry and ceased upon the closing of the canon. And all right, just give me that verse. And while you're looking for that, I'm going to be over here believing God ain't retired. 
I'm going to be over here believing miracles can still happen. Why? Because God's best days, his most powerful days, are not in the review mirror. God did not hang up his power 2,000 years ago. I believe God is still willing and still able to do awesome things. Do you believe that? To do awesome things through the word, to lift high the name of Jesus. He's willing, he's able, and he's going to do it through these words. So at Vertical Church, this year more than ever, Jesus wants to reconcile the divorce between Holy Spirit and Holy Bible. Spirit-filled churches must be word-obsessed churches. And word-obsessed churches must be spirit-filled churches. Otherwise, they'll be how Martin, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones described the churches in his day, perfectly orthodox and perfectly useless. We don't have to be that. Because the words that Jesus has spoken to us are spirit and life. You go, how, do, how does this apply to me? Lean into this more than ever. If you're going, man, my life feels dry. I just feel like it's dead. It's just, lean into this. Just Let's just believe what the word says about the word. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active. I'm a pretty simple guy. But I think that means this thing is alive. I think this means I take all my books, the ones over here are books, they're dead, and one book is over here, and there's a huge gap between them, the Bible is alive. 1 Peter 1.23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Guys, how have we been born again? How is it that we're here as Christians this morning? I mean, I don't know where you were, but I know where I was. How is it that I'm here? You've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Somebody preached, and I heard the gospel. I became alive. And the same is true with you. And just see how the word and the spirit work together. Acts 4.29, Peter says, And now look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. If you want to pray for me, pray that for me. Man, may Chris continue to speak the word with all boldness. Guys, that's what every church is going to need in our world today. Church leaders who will speak the word with all boldness, no matter what kind of pressures are happening outside. But what we also need, look at verse 30, while. There's no period there. Comma. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The words of Jesus are spirit and life. That means preaching is paramount. And when I say preaching, I don't just mean this, what I'm doing. I mean, when you wake up every day, your entire day is going to be determined by if you allow yourself to push yourself around or if you grab your soul by the gruff of the neck and you preach to yourself. That's how, here's how it sounds in my life. Every morning I wake up pretty early and I feel the same old things. I'm a crappy dad. I'm a bad husband. I'm a stupid pastor. No one likes me. I'm ugly. I'm fat. I'm this. I'm that. My one, significance at, my one shot at significance is gone. It's just over. And every day I'm just getting a little bit better at saying... Spare me the violin, you big baby. Like, 
believe the word. Like, believe the book, Chris. You are saved, Romans 8.1. You are the king's kid, Ephesians 1.4. You are on God's good side, and you'll never again be on his bad side, Romans 5.1. Your biggest problem, death, has been solved. You're just going to have to take people's word for it because you will never taste death. John 8, 51. You're never going to go to hell, John 3, 16. God doesn't just love you. He likes you. He's actually dancing over you right now, Zephaniah 3, 17. And you have a purpose today that is incomprehensibly and unimaginably bright. And the worst things that are going to happen today are actually going to make for you an uncomprehensible weight of glory to be enjoyed forever, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. I mean, so every day I step into the shower covered in doubts and discouragements and disappointments, and through the washing of the word, I come out of the shower and I'm full of just a little more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And then my poor wife comes up. She wakes up and she's like, good morning. I'm like, it's a great morning. (laughs) It's one of our big marital issues. (laughs) We'll take it to Dave. But it's because the spirit guides. It's not the washing of the water. It's the washing of the word that gives us spiritual vitality. This means we are so not content with generic, general ideas from the Bible. Bible Bible-based sermons, we are into the prepositions, the verb tenses. Because verb tense in the Bible will change your life. I saw the Steiners somewhere. Where are the Steiners? Yeah, let's go. The Steiners have Revelation 1.5. Jesus' love, only time in the New Testament, it says, to him who is loving us, present continuous tense. It's not past tense, to him who loved us. To him who is loving us? Wait, wait, so I just like, I just did that. He's loving you, present continuous. Well, well, what if I do that? He will be loving you, present continuous. Verb tenses change your life. Like, Literally change your life forever. So we want to get into the text more and ever, more and more and more and ever. I've been following, falling in love with Jesus for 13 years now. I'm pretty much still 16. Like it's embarrassing, but I've changed a little bit. And the, the only areas that I've actually experienced spiritual growth and spiritual change are those places where I pushed aside my glib surfacy pre-understanding of a passage and submitted to the words. Like Romans 9 changed my life. I went into Romans 9 thinking I was big and God is small. I'm the center and God is peripheral. And then I came out of Romans 9 thinking God is huge and I'm small. God is center and I'm peripheral. And it changed my life. When we go water skiing across the Bible, just picking up whatever reaffirms our already held beliefs, guys, there's no life in that. There's there's no glory in that. There's, There's no power in that. But when we struggle, and then through the Spirit, we finally submit life. You will change 
Jesus promises. So this year, just two things. Let's be more expectant than ever. Let's be people who long to see both word and spirit demonstrated and emphasized in equal measure. Let's lean in, not saying, just preach the word, man. Let's, let's lean in and go and give me the word, and Lord, give us the spirit. And then let's be more prayerful than ever. Martin Luther, he was a word guy. Luther prayed two hours a day. Wesley prayed four hours a day. Where are the Luthers today? Where are, where are the Wesleys today? Every great revival in church history was preceded by prayer and then poured out through the preaching of the word. So guys, let's, let's not just preach. Let's pray and then preach. In fact, if you have your Bible, let's just close on this. Turn it over to Luke Luke 11. Yeah, Luke 11. Maybe this is of the Spirit. It's not in my notes. Luke 11, G- Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. It's amazing. You could have asked Jesus, how do, you, how do you walk on water, man? They didn't ask him that. They said, how do you pray? They knew prayer is the key. And he says down, look at verse 8. I tell you, Actually, yeah, it's good. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone. Who who's in this room is included in that word? Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Let's ask him.